Hello, this is Bill Willingham, the writer and uh, creator, as if those were separate jobs, of the Fables comic book series. And giving a shout out to Spoiler Country and uh, your host, Jeff Haas. I have nothing more to say about him. (laughs) we're, We're doing a show. Come and see the show. There won't be popcorn. <laughs> hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Henrik and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVerse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Johnny Horsley, and today on the show, Jeff sits down and chats with Bill Willingham, who was the writer behind 150 issues of Fables, and he wrote so much more stuff. I mean, Fables, Last Crusade, tons of Fables stuff. If you love Fables, this is the episode for you. He also wrote, you know, The Literals, Peter and Max, uh, a, a bunch of stuff. The guy's been writing comic books and, and stories for forever, pretty much. Worked with some great talents around, around the industry. So, you know, without further ado, let's just sit back, listen to Jeff and, and Bill chat it up. Welcome, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today, I have the fantastic writer of Fables, Mr. Bill Willingham. How are you, Mr. Willingham? Apparently, I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. You're making uh, out well in the new world that we live in? Sure. I got to tell you, I, I started social distancing about 10 years ago. So, <laughs> uh, so my skills in this particular world are, are pretty, pretty well-practiced, well-refined. So you're already you're already an expert. You got a head start on it. Yeah, it's uh, it's mostly a case of I have never been uh, terribly comfortable in public, and I would kind of perhaps overdo the hail fellow well met kind of cover to to mask that. But a little while ago, about the time Fables was ending, so maybe it's not ten years. I don't know. I realized that if I wanted to. I didn't have to go anywhere anymore. <laughs> and it actually took a while to ease into that. There were there were some outstanding obligations. I told different conventions and such that, yeah, I'll, I'll do you someday. And so it took me a while to retire those. But then I just started staying home and uh, found out that that is just a, a lovely place to be. Yeah, it's fantastic that in the new reality, you pretty much kind of don't have to. Everything can be delivered to your house now. Groceries can be delivered. Anything you need is delivered. You can do everything for purchasing online. You, you, We can virtually live a solitary existence if you choose. 
we as as a, a technological culture, there are there are certain aspects of of the human beast that will never quite uh, discharge the kind of need to be in herds from time to time. But technologically, yeah, it's like we prepared for exactly this kind of an eventuality. Imagine how different the world would be if during the Black Plague, everyone could just stay home and isolate, you know, when a third of the world's population died during that, and who knows how many would have died. That said, the scientists that, that I find most credible say that, that all of this is a way to certainly delay it, but the all-important what portion of humanity is going to end up being immune to this particular plague requires that about 60% exposure to it take place. Are you talking about uh, herd immunity? Yeah. So that what we're doing is we're delaying the 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 time of of getting some significant herd immunity, but at the benefit of you know just not dying off in droves. Well it kind of reminds me of there's an episode of the West Wing. I'm not gonna remember all the details of it. But there was a, conver- a conversation about what to do about because we're, we're actually in, interestingly enough, we're gonna come up, come up later the Israeli Palestine conflict, and one of the qu- characters asked the other character, "What are we waiting on?" And it's the other character said, "Until we're waiting on someone to have a better idea." And it feels like we're almost sort of like that, doing that with COVID, where we're kind of hoping someone figures out how to fix how to uh, solve this issue, and hopefully push the date back as much as possible so someone can figure it out. Which is kind of hopefully it, it, that's a, that's a workable hypothesis. I don't know if that would actually work, but it'd be nice if we can wait till someone can come up with a, a viable vaccine that can help. Well, at the last I heard, the best vaccine is only about 77% effective. But even if it is 77% effective, that still would be decent. You know, at least some of us could feel safer, especially those of us with pre-existing con- uh, conditions. Yeah, a vaccine would be nice. We as a uh, species do not have a great track record of being willing to do what some leader tells us to do just because, well, that's rational. So, you know, good luck if such a, uh, a great leader and set of solutions comes along, but, but I, I'll, I'll remain a little dubious. Yeah. I mean, I must say um, there's, there's certain aspects of this that as someone who's a um, kind of a germaphobic person who never liked to shake hands or be in big groups, does this find see some benefits of this since apparently shaking hands is officially defunct is we don't have to do it anymore, which is kind of, kind of a nice um, cultural thing to lose. In we, my don't, personal opinion. But we don't have to do that anymore, which is okay. I was, I was ambivalent about shaking hands, but I got to tell you something. I don't want to be accused of seeing a silver lining in this cloud. It's a plague. A plague is not a good thing. But I hope, or at least suspect, that this is the death of hugging. Yes. I have never liked hugging. I have a few friends that just cannot get it into their heads that I don't like hugging. Nowadays, I just get to back up and say, stay, stay away uh, yeah. in those rare times when I see them. And boy, conventions, the number of people, you know, God bless them. I'm, I'm glad that they like meeting, you know, someone who's, who's done a story that, that has, has affected them. 
emotional and sometimes even spiritual level. You know, good for you, and I'm glad you want to see me. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm even pleased that you you want to hug me in public. But, but I just, I just hated that, especially when they would come in, explaining that they're a hugger as they're already in <laughs> in route. Yeah. Now, what do you do? Do you push that person away? That's that's. Uh, that's not a very kind way to treat someone who who supported your your indolence for 13 years and kept you from having to get a job. Briefly, just before this broke, I invented the the hug coupon, where I'd, <laughs> I'd step back and say hug coupon, <laughs> and like you know we 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 get the value of the hug. Uh, yeah. without actually having to do the thing. Have you used the I'm sick excuse? I have a cold? No. I. You know, maybe because every year at a big convention, people go home and get sick with the con crud. If I kept using that as my excuse, they would go home, get the con crud, and blame me. It says, And he even, <laughs> the one who gave it to me, admitted it to me. Uh, so I didn't want to be that villain. So no. Yeah. Using using I'm sick as an excuse is is fraught with peril. Uh, there's, there's too many too many bad things that can come as an unintended consequence of it. And 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 I, and I will say too, like I said, I, I agree with you that a plague does not have silver linings, and I totally agree with, it, especially someone like me who has diabetes. My wife has asthma. It's definitely not something that we we, we look you know we like having in the environment around us. But I, I will say it's. The idea of the handshake at a job interview as a judgment of character, I'm glad that's gone or will be yeah. gone. Because I, th- I thought that was the most ridiculous customs I've ever heard in my entire life. Well, it's, it's a lingering one. It took us a long time to dispense with it. The handshake is proof that, that you're not armed and not about to kill the other guy. You know, we probably don't need to, to have a physical demonstration of that. <laughs> and, you know, if... If you're still a little worried, have have your bodyguards do a pat down on me, and I'll have my bodyguards do a pat down on you. But uh, uh, yeah, handshakes aren't important. Although the thing is, is that it, it's been with us for so long. I mean, handshakes have been with us through through generations. I mean, multitudes of generations, to where at least a uh, fairly agreed upon etiquette for handshakes has developed. I mean, two strong pumps and you disengage. And if they're if they're not doing that, there's there's something weird or creepy going <laughs> on. So, you know, when I was a little whippersnapper, back before I became an old man who yelled at clouds, <laughs> we would get a a manners expert to come in around you know second grade, third grade, whatever, and just start explaining to us the the manners one needs. Uh, to get along in social life. And the handshake was part of that, you know, hold the door open for a woman, never, never push away in front of a woman to enter a room, except, except on an elevator. On an elevator, the polite thing to do is to proceed a woman onto the elevator, because this was back in the old technological days where there was a reasonable chance that as soon as someone entered, the elevator would plunge to, <laughs> to its doom. Yeah. So it was up to the guy to, to take that chance. Yeah. Uh, many times. Uh, and the thing is when you're young, that stuff sticks with you. I, the, the telephone etiquette was you never let it ring more than five rings. Now, nowadays we have answering things that pick up before then, but, but my entire life, 
even if I knew they were there and maybe they, they had a tough time getting to the phone, at that fifth ring, I had to hang up. I couldn't, I couldn't overcome this. <laughs> and I can't overcome the, yep, elevator comes, you, you step on first. And sometimes I've gotten like, well, that's certainly rude from people. And then, <laughs> and then I had a very short elevator ride to explain to them on how actually I was being mannerly. <laughs> well, you, you know, it, I, I, one thing we do all need to recognize is that it, it, you're not necess- if rudeness and being a subject of how you were raised is different things sometimes. And we do need to be, well, whether, whether it's to be understanding and maybe take the moment to allow for the misunderstanding before attacking the misunderstanding. Sure. I, I think the, the, well, the, the five rings is just because telephones were new enough to where it was still considered a rude intrusion to, to call someone beckoned. You know, you'd have to call someone to get permission to say, would, would you mind terribly if I called you? Which, of course, defeats the purpose. So, <laughs> so that, that was just a, a matter of manners. But uh, so much of how we were to behave is, was a, were variations on if it's you and a woman, make sure that you take the bullet or you take the sword or you, you get hit by the car or, or whatever. So, yeah, the the reasons behind it have probably changed. What's nice now is that with texting and all that, uh, telephoning has become rare again. And once again, it's kind of becoming an intrusion, an unwarranted intrusion. When's the last time you called someone without, you know, like maybe uh, texting first and saying, mind if I give you a call in a, in a few minutes? The only person I ever do that to is my father. My father, I'll, I'll call without, you know, warning, as it were. Everyone else, I would rather just test. I don't want to talk, call them at all, to be honest with you. <laughs> Me too. It's like the last case. It's like the, the it's a, you know, it's like the worst case scenario. I got to make a phone call. <laughs> yeah, some of the some of the most blessed moments in my life. I've had some ups and downs in my career, and there are times when, like after Elementals but before Fables, when very few people were picking up my calls that I couldn't afford to make anyway. There were times when I couldn't really afford a phone, Yeah, and it was frustrating in the looking for work aspect, but, but I got to tell you, those were, were some of the most comfortable memories of my life, is just how the pressure's off. I, I know... I'm going to take this nap and no one's going to call, you know, isn't that nice? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it has its advantages. Now, now one thing, um, if, if I read correctly, I obviously did a little bit of background on you is that you actually grew up in a military family. Now yes. is, is being the stereotype of, of, of a military family is that is the idea of being a very rigid family system. Is that part of what created your, you know, five calls? You're, you're very, uh, you know, you're, you're very into, it seems like ethics and whatnot, or what's supposed to be done for behaviors and things of that nature. Do you think that comes a bit from the military um, household? Certainly there was, there was an absolute uh, need to behave in a certain way. Part of it was setting an example. What I didn't realize as a little kid there were enlisted men in the army and there were officers. I didn't quite get that distinction. The enlisted residences were all separated from where officers and officers' families lived. And in Germany, in Bootsbach, where we were stationed at one time, the enlisted barracks were these long rows of, of apartment-like buildings, row after row after row after row. In each of these buildings, the, the top-ranking enlisted man was sort of captain of the building 
he had to to do all sorts. Of, he, he was the leader of of the residents. He would be the person that people came to with complaints or whatever. And that was my dad. As a result, as a kid, I thought my dad ran the army because in the little area that we were able to go to, everyone deferred to him. So when we had to act in certain ways, there was often the 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 adjudication that that you know you have to do this because how can I you know settle disputes with with so and so if I can't even control my own family? We had a sprawling big family, so there was that. It was a very disciplined childhood. A little anecdote that that hopefully will shock people is my dad was not always a a pleasant person and he would often opine things like this army and this will be okay if it wasn't for all the the krauts and the god i can't even bring myself to say it anymore the n-words yeah that are that are infesting everything blacks were were getting pretty uh prominent in the military then and and Krauss, you got to understand the army stationed in germany during the entire time up until recently, the army was the number one employer of all Germans. So there was lots of civilian personnel doing everything. And I would hear this tirades many times. And I didn't, three years old then, three, four years old, I knew they were bad people, but I didn't know who they were. Although I guess I was picking up context because one time I was out on our porch and I saw the the blackest human being I'd ever seen in my life walking up towards the uh, housing complex. Uh, he was a major in the army. And I was just curious I, I, because I think he was one of the categories that, that the, the people that were ruining the army fell into. So very politely, I shouted, excuse me, sir, are you a kraut or a, and that's when I found out that my dad didn't actually run the army uh, <laughs> because there was pounding on our door and, and yelling and stuff. And for the first time in my life, I, I uh, witnessed my dad saying a whole bunch of yes, sir, and a whole bunch of no, sir. And then I was in trouble afterwards. But it really was an honest, you know, I just, I had no idea which was which. And I was curious. A friend later on in life said that, you know, you ask your dad very few things. And I can't understand growing up that way because this, this guy, Billy Gilbert, was him and his dad, they talked about everything. Uh, and I didn't know why I never asked my dad stuff, but it was probably back to that incident where, you know, you ask certain questions, you can get in trouble. Anyway, I, I'm not sure what we were speaking to then, but yes, very disciplined family. We were a very nuclear family. My mother, during the Second World War, worked at the Hannaford Atomic Works, so she was part of the Manhattan Project. When we had a farm later on, downwind of Hannaford, if you ever heard about the downwinders incident where Hannaford was was venting nuclear steam and gas without telling anyone, we were one of the farms that was downwind of all that, so we're soaking up the nukes. And then when, when I went into the Army, I guarded nukes for a long time and learned how to blow them up to keep them out of those uh, godless Ruskies' hands. So yeah, we were very uh, a very nuclear family, probably disciplined. Now, one obviously one of the hardest things to do is uh, is to take in what you've been educated on and obviously go beyond it. So, when at what point did you realize where your father was going with that with his beliefs on uh, the Germans and um, African Americans or Black people was wrong? Like, did you do that on your own? Did, was it someone who came to you? 
No, it was it was a, a lesson done in, in about a 10-minute segment that day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was in a lot of trouble. And then by by virtue of that, I was in a lot of trouble. So, yeah, it didn't take a very long lesson at all. It didn't take a long time for it to sink in. We had lots of discussions, meaning I shut up and listened, and he talked uh, about how you have to treat people uh, of all types well. And it's just... Uh, I did not ask the the obvious question. Well, it was like, but when you know we're home and the doors close and whatever, and you've had a, a couple, you're not exactly li- living the the life you preach, Dad. I would never have said that, even if I had the erudition at the time to do so. <laughs> but no, the lesson was not a long one coming. It 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 happened very quickly and and sunk in immediately. So how did being living in a military family, did that have an impact on you as a writer as well, on, on, or especially how it altered or had an effect on your uh, worldview? Sure, in a couple of ways. First of all, back then we could not afford a TV. There was very limited furniture and stuff that they would bring over for you, and televisions were considered a luxury, and there probably wasn't much TV available then anyway. So we had a lot of free time for three years while I was stationed over there with my parents. So we got into reading. Now, I was too young to really read on my own, but probably 20 years before that with a lack of TV gave us the plethora, the about 6,000 older sisters that I had. You know, since there's nothing to watch on TV, well, whatever. So... I had a lot of older sisters, and they could. I could usually find one to read to me, which I did often. I loved comic books early on. I could see and understand the pictures, couldn't get all the words. Uh, finding one of the sisters to read to me, I, I became a, uh, a comic book kid uh, very early on, and, uh, and that never went away. Stories... It took me a while to realize that stories also came from the television. Stories came from either the post theater. My father has a moonlighting job. I, I, I lost the word moonlighting for a second there. Worked at the post theater as a projectionist. So here's what I understood about my father. Is he ran the army. And when I go to visit him in his office on, on base, you know, he controlled everyone there too. Because, because all these, these little lieutenants and, and, and young captains... When you get a, a sergeant major, there, there's, there was a lot of, you know, you tell them what to do, even though ostensibly they were, they outranked you. So I believed it when, when he would say he ran the army. And I would ask him questions about how he knew what was coming up. Uh, we would often go up to the projection booth and just watch movies with him late at night. Three, four years old, and we're watching these, you know, Lots of Bible pictures and the destruction of Gomorrah and things like that. But uh, he'd predict what's coming up. He says, oh, you're going to want to watch this. Now, I did not know that these weren't the first time these things were, were shown. So I'd ask, how did you know that was going to happen, Dad? And he goes, well, when I made this picture, I <laughs> – and I believe that because he's the one showing the movie, so he must run, you know, right, movie right, making right. too. <laughs> uh yeah, my gullibility factor was pretty pretty damn high, but but yeah. So I found out the stories could come from them too. But it took me, it took them retiring. They retire. He retired right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which uh, Germany was going to be the battleground if it all went to hell. 
I did not know that as a kid. I just knew that we're, we're finally going to America to live. And it wasn't until we got settled down in the States that, that I really experienced TV for the first time. And by then, storytelling was done with books and, and occasionally movies, but TV as the, as the larger, more influential delivery platform for stories didn't come along until much later. So one, one, speaking of, we touched a little bit of your worldview and you um, and your military family. I found what I, one thing I found that was most interesting in actually doing some um, research on fables is that, and it, I don't know if this is correct or not, but you stated this was an allegory for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. No, others have stated that. Others have stated that. Now, would would you? They, they interpreted what I put in there because I used I used an allegory as an example in one situation. Now, would you say that's is there anything as, as, as about your um, series fables that it became so popular and it's so well regarded that there are a lot of college level papers written about it and graduate level papers? Now, yes. would you would you say that that idea of that allegory is totally off base, or would you say there's something in there that maybe you can see or can see where they got it from, or would you say that's kind of wishful thinking? Whoever may have wanted to discuss that topic. Well, I think both. Now, here here's the thing is. Israel, in its very existence, is is a a powder keg in people's minds. I will, to my dying day, not understand about the the one democracy in the Middle East and a center of freedom is reviled, and and uh, a billion population of, of surrounding countries bent on their destruction are considered by many the the good guys so that puzzles me i believe i inherited that from my mother who was uh rabidly pro-israel not jewish but just uh, my mother was was a supporter of the underdog i guess was how she put it at one point but anyway so that stuck with me but i tried to keep it up but but just in deciding to use the israeli so-called cycle of violence as a illustration for that one scene was sort of like you know popping the cork on you know a high-pressure product there. So it was wrong of them to assume I was pro-Israeli just because of that one scene, even though they got it right, but they got there in the wrong way. So how dare they? You know, you can't you can't assume something. I mean. I write vile villains all the time. Do you assume that I want people, you know, killed in vast numbers? I don't, yeah, uh, yeah. for the record. So the assumption was made, and and then you know it was frustrating because well, you came to the right conclusion in which I'm pro-Israeli, but you got there what I consider like you know thin evidence. It reminds me of Alan Moore's what's his Jack the Ripper tale? Oh, from hell. From hell. Where that end line was, uh, the 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 so-called psychic who said, "Yeah, I I made it all up, everything I said, but it all came true anyway." So you know, it's just the these weird confluences of stuff, or maybe people are just so much smarter than than <laughs> I give them credit for, so that on very tenuous evidence, you know, they're all a bunch of Sherlock Holmeses that can. You know, look at one small out of place place thread and deduce an entire crime scene or something. I'm say, as a writer, is it hard to know at the moment 
you publish whatever it is you're writing that it kind of you kind of lose it to some extent to those who are reading it? Well, you have to. You don't just kind of lose it to those who are reading it. The story only takes place in the collaboration between the storyteller and the reader. It doesn't take place when you just present the story because you don't always have the best uh, view of the story you're telling. Uh, a good example of this, you know, I, I, I talk on those few times when I lecture people about how to write is try to be careful of the story you think you're telling versus the story you're actually telling. Let's use How I Met Your Mom as an example. It's supposedly this, you know, kind of good-hearted, long-winded telling to his children of how he met their mother, which is like, you know, what a what a nice family tale to tell. Yeah. But in the course of it, he goes into so much detail to provide the, you know, all the material for the sitcom that he's like, you know, he's telling his just uh, dating age daughter about how he would he would nail single women right and left, you know, <laughs> knocking yep. them off. And even when he she, he finds out that one of them is basically a Nazi, it's like, yeah, she was pretty. So I did her, <laughs> you know, it's just like that's the story they were really telling It's like. This is an icky thing for a dad to be telling his 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 teenage son and teenage daughter, one of whom is going to be uh, subject to guys like him, and yeah. one of whom is in danger of becoming a guy like him. That's the story they were actually telling. So, so you need to be cognizant of: Are you actually telling the story you think you're telling? Um, the reader ultimately decides that. The reader is the ultimate collaboration. Uh, collaboration that's a bad word but and it's not, and the story isn't told until it's filtered through there you go to a play you read a book and you, and you say you know the night approached the city now if you were going to tell every detail and not leave anything for the reader to do on his own you would then have to bring the story to a, a screeching halt while you described every aspect of this city, what the hill was like that it was on, what the names of all the streets are, what the, the names of all the people are, and all that kind of And, of course, your story would get bogged down. That would be a terrible decision to make. So instead, you have to trust the night approached the city, and unless it's vitally important to know a lot of details about that city, trust your collaborator, the reader, to fill in those details. They'll do just fine without you. The nice part about that is I can legitimately say, you know, the, there's, the, there's the controversy on who really wrote the, the complete works of Shakespeare. It was me, because those stories weren't fully told until I received them and processed them. And I think I got everyone, every play, either read or seen performed. Therefore, that that's it. I'm the guy who really wrote the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> hey, it's fun to, to just say that, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. But, I mean, do you ever worry that your readers are getting the wrong thing out of your works? Or do you are, are you able to totally release it like and feel comfortable with that release of, of what, you know what I'm saying? Of, the, of that sometimes ownership. I, yeah, sometimes I feel more comfortable, sometimes less. But here's the thing. You don't control it. Once you present your part of the collaboration to them, they own the story. So, you know, you can you can worry that they're not getting what you want. You, uh, but what sense is that worry? It's out of your hands. Now, now speaking since we're um, not going to go into a little bit of fables itself, I think one interesting thing you, you did a lot in 150 issues plus Jack of Fables, which I know you um, didn't write specifically, but then also you have a, a thousand nights of. Um, I think it was Snowfall. 
and there's, there's a lot of big ideas in that story, and I like to go over uh, some of it, some of it with you. And I think one of the more interesting ones is that Fable Town is a secret from the from what you call the mundanes, correct? Right. Now, do you think as the? I mean, obviously you're the writer, so you kind of know, but at the same time, you you don't explicitly say it. Do you think if it was ever if it is revealed or was revealed that the fables were real, the town was real, would they have found acceptance? Whether or not they find acceptance is a story still to be told, perhaps someday. But since this is spoiler country, I'm going to spoil it. Like you know, near the <laughs> end of the series, Fable Town is revealed. It might be interesting, at some point, to go back to that moment that the the Mundies find out that they actually do live in a magical world and and answer the inevitable question in serialized literature, which is what happens next. But I'm not saying look, if I were to to say what what they would find, acceptance or not, uh now that this uh broadcast would actually constitute a sequel to <laughs> that series and and I'm not willing to do that yet. Well uh, one day are you thinking about doing a sequel? Can I Say no comment. Oh, you can always say no comment. I, I, I may not ever, I may not stop asking anyway. But you're more than welcome to always say that uh, no comment. That's, that's a totally fair answer. Okay. If no comment doesn't work, I will. I will switch to shut your damn mouth at some point. But <laughs> we're not there yet, so uh, plow ahead. I, 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 will, I will tread lightly, sir. <laughs> now, I kind of almost thought of when, when, when one of the more interesting parts about the story as well is the relationship you created between Beast and Beauty. Which yes. I thought was a fantastic allegory for marriage life, and that the idea that the angrier or the worse the relationship gets, the more beasting out happens to the beast. Now, is that beasting out that is that because of how beauty sees him, and he becomes a reflection of how he sees him, see, uh, she sees him, or is that a reflection of how he's beginning to see himself through her eyes? It, it was really. This is going to sound hoity-toity. It was really a, a meditation on the fairy tale idea of perfect love, which I don't think perfect love, this side of various promised afterlifes, can actually exist. So since it was her love of him that changed him from a beast back into the handsome prince, as that love waxes and wanes, I just asked the question of myself, well, what if... What if the curse waxes and wanes along with that? <laughs> and that was entirely sure it was to be a meditation on what really fairy tale love is about. But also, it was a, and this was foremost for, for a lot of issues, a lot of scenes, do I think this would be funny? And I thought, yeah. you know, half a beast that could hardly talk because his mouth hasn't adjusted to the growing fangs and stuff, that would be funny. And and some people agreed, and if if some didn't agree, uh, at least they were polite enough not to uh, <laughs> let me know. Now, the, the interesting about that though, as well, I mean, obviously the joke, you know, a joke side, which I did, I did think was very I did think was very entertaining, is that because oh, of, oh no worries, because of the curse itself, is there then the argument to be made that Beast is with Beauty because of the curse, not because he still loves her? It became. I don't know that I set out about this, but there were so many different kinds of love stories told in, in a sprawling 150 issues that at some point I decided, and I, I believe Bucky went along, that let's have at least one marriage that works, that has stood the test of time and is kind of a testament to, 
you know, sometimes you sometimes you really do just find your lifelong love and 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 that's who you want forever. And of course, as soon as we decided that, we had to test it by having Prince Charming with his his radiant power of seduction take a run at her. And I like that we we made her seriously tempted. I mean, there's there's something about him to where you know there was there was part of her that was just on the threshold of okay, I guess this is happening, and I'm going to, and and then she managed to pull herself out, which is either an indication that maybe his seduction powers magically enhanced weren't as strong as he thought they were, or maybe you know the the love between her and Beast were was just that. That powerful to where she was able to pull herself back from the brink. You know, I have no idea whether or not I answered your question. No, don't worry about it. I mean, it, 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 it also, I mean, it's something that you kind of, it seemed like you also hint, um, hinted at and kind of approached a little bit with Snow and Bigby as well, where you obviously have the, the beautiful woman and the, the beastly guy who the woman is helping keep um, in control on some level. Is, was that something as well you were um, making a connection to as well? Well, it was really a, as soon as. I decided that they were going to be the will-they-won't-they couple. By the way, I learned the definition of shipping because of that. Um, (laughs) uh, People on the Fables forum back in the time were were said, I'm shipping Bigby and Snow. I'm shipping Bigby and Snow. And I didn't know the way, you know, you kids with your lingo, and by lingo I mean your patois, yeah. Uh, refer to things. So I finally had to ask, is like, so you don't like the romance between them? They, what are you talking about? We're shipping them. And I go, yeah, you're trying to get rid of them? Because all <laughs> I could think of the meta, the shipping was the metaphor of put them on a ship and and send them out over the horizon, get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they explained to me, no, 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 you, you, you silly, daughterly old man. Shipping is relationship. It's, you know, we're putting them together. And I go, ah, too late. I did it already. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so so when I decided that, it occurred that it would be kind of a parallel to the Beauty and the Beast story. But she did not fall in love with him despite his beastly form. She fell in love with the, regardless of the form, the, the human, the, the wolf, the whatever, the, the strength of character. The, oh, this guy is devoted to me, and he's always always going to be there when I need him, which is, I guess, something, you know, hopefully whenever you find your spouse, he, she, or it, that's a quality that's that's going to be uh, present there. Like, will this this person or creature be there when you need them? So that was that was the, the basis of that. The, the real origin of, of the Big Bad Wolf as a good guy was simply because he was my favorite fairy tale character, and if he was a villain... I could not use him too often. Yeah. He could show up maybe once, maybe twice to present some trouble. But if the same villain keeps showing up again and again and again, then really remember the rule, the story you think you're telling versus the story you're, you're actually telling. Really, the story is what a bunch of inept heroes. This this community <laughs> has no right to exist because they can't even get rid of the the, the dangerous monsters trying to prey on them. Yeah. With any finality. That's why, you know, every every DC superhero, no matter how magnificent their powers, is ultimately a failure. That's that's the story of of every superhero character. As long as 
they face recurring villains that are valuable company properties. So we can't kill them because uh, these are assets belonging to shareholders. Therefore, they're always going to show up every once in a while, say boo, and here we go again. I didn't think I could do that with Bigby. So the only solution to that problem was let's make him a good guy now. How can I justify this? Now, the, the interesting thing with Bigby, I mean, obviously his backstory is extremely bloody, especially once again, the graphic novel that you wrote as well, where he, I mean, he's killed a lot of people. Yes. You're by having him marry Snow and basically ha- have the happy ending, even though he obviously died once. Are you then arguing that he is, re- that it's everyone's redeemable? He's redeemable or through Snow, he's redeemable? I think my worldview is not that everyone is redeemable. And it's not that no one is redeemable, but somewhere in between. His is indeed a redemption story, though. A successful one, I think. So, but, and, you, and you think he deserved, I mean, is there, did, did he, in your opinion, he did enough to make up for what he did as damage? No. No. He received forgiveness and the general amnesty of the Fable Town Charter, which is one of the ongoing themes. Good works, doing enough to make up for your bad was not a precondition of that. Might get a little religious at this point, where in the sense that forgiveness is not dependent on earning your way out of being a bad person. If you can earn your way out, you don't need forgiveness. You know, it is a an exercise in in spiritual capitalism. I don't quite believe that's possible. God knows I never want to receive everything I deserve in life. I suspect that's the same for just about anyone. No, he has not done enough. I, I mean, in my mind, he hasn't. Others can can disagree. No, he received forgiveness, not... But in, you wouldn't say that he, he, he has not necessarily redeemed him, himself, and he was, but it's been... Ex- Almost, not want to say excuse, but you do say he is able to at least make the attempt to make amends for for what he's done. I think he's made amends in many ways, and that was the word I was looking for: amends. A redemption and amends are two different concepts. Redemption is basically you have this many green stamps that you've saved up. You can take it into you know stores back when there were stores that redeem green stamps and get you know a new toy trike or whatever. You get a value for the work you did in collecting all of those green stamps. He has not been redeemed in that sense of the word because, you know, he was accepted before he'd done anything to to make up for his his bad past. So yeah, he wasn't he wasn't redeemed in that sense. It's a redemption story in the in the Uber sense of that word. But yeah, I don't I don't think you get that kind of forgiveness because you deserve it. It devalues the the wonderful concept of forgiveness for one thing, which is I mean, by God, what a what a thing to come up with. If we are just I, I am an atheist by by default in the sense that I just can't believe, you know, the the various stories explaining things, but but when you when you discuss concepts like the ability to forgive without without getting all of the stuff they've done paid for, that's that's a pretty extraordinary invention. 
and and one that probably probably saved our our civilization from going extinct a few times over. Now, now, in in the world of the fables, they don't necessarily have. I don't think necessarily a afterlife. I don't even seem to recall that in the series at all. Am I wrong in that? Uh, the fables themselves. Do you want me to give it away? It doesn't impact a future story that you may or may not be writing. Well, for anyone out there that hasn't completed all 150 issues of Fables, starting when I say now, put your hands over your ears and go, nah, 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 <laughs> for 15 seconds. Okay, starting now. In the last issue of Fables, it did show that, that some of the dead ones went on, indeed, to other afterlives. Now... Well, one thing I think was interesting as well is that in the story, I think you seem, I think you hit it more earlier on than you did later on. Is the idea that in some level, on, on some way, the fables are empowered by the belief in the mundanes? Am I getting that correctly? How that works? You are doing that correctly. That was the prevailing theory, but there was no point in which the the series ever said absolutely that's how it works. As a matter of fact, there's a point at which uh, Frau Totenkinder says that's a nice concept, but no, that's not how it works. She seemed to think something else was going on, but being a, a secretive old witch, she never quite explained uh, what that might be. Then again, she might be wrong. Remember, she's lied many times to cover up her own scheming. So, yeah, possibly that's what was happening. Now, I, one thing that you also did extremely well, talking about the ideas of mundanes and, and the idea of magic, that you definitely created an interesting magical world. And one thing I found that's kind of interesting is that when the series starts, you kind of refer to New York as a fictional land. Now, yes. to, in, is that fictional land in the sense of, you know, in the story, quite literal fictional? Or do you, are you saying that because there's some sort of unnatural quality to New York itself that we can look at and go like, this obviously has gone with all the people and teaming of people. The city itself is almost like a living magical entity on some level. Well, hopefully it worked on many levels. In, in one sense, I knew even then that our world was not the one world devoid of magic the way everyone thought it was. But somehow it was locked up. So I was, I was signal, signaling that a little bit. When you want to talk about foreshadowing... I was laying groundwork to things that weren't going to happen and, and didn't until about 150 issues later. On another level, every every location, every person, every anything in existence, you don't see all the reality of it. You just see the story you've told yourself about it. New York is is, you know, eight million different things depending on the stories and the perceptions of its eight million inhabitants. Probably more than that now, I think. But, you know, I'm, I'm going by the old, there are 8 million stories in the Naked City. This is one of them. Show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's a fictional land called New York. And in, in that same sense, we all live in, in fictional places because our perception of it and, and the reality of it, uh, if there is like one objective reality, and that can also be argued. But anyway, our perception and the objective reality, there's always going to be differences between those two things. And the difference hinges on the stories we tell each other. We are the storytelling people, as I say in one of the introductions to one of the collections. 
We should not be called Homo erectus, even though we can stand erect. All sorts of critters can stand erect. We are, we are Homo fabulous, the storytelling people, and uh, <laughs> we we exist, and we've kind of conquered this world strictly because we became adept at telling each other's stories. And just as much as you're saying, then the cities that we live in are, and some and some level have a fic- are fictional because we always we share stories like that about ourselves and people we know as well. Are that saying that we're on some level fictional as far as our perceptions of each other and ourselves? I would say I would answer that with the best of the Coen Brothers movies, which was Miller's Crossing, where at one point Miller, the the crook, says nobody knows anybody. Then he qualifies that by saying not that well. I would have I would have kept it stronger just by because he he plays a cynical character. Uh, <laughs> nobody knows anybody, and that's true. I I think that is true. No one really knows anyone, and I would even go so far as to say, including you know the old know thyself. Some of us get closer, deeper, uh, more aware than others, but but we never. We never plumb those depths. Once again, did I answer your question? I mean, that's that's my philosophy. I, your mileage, of course, may vary. <laughs> no, no, I think that was a, a, a good question. And, and I must say, and I like that you've touched on a few times the idea of religion. And cause I do think, and I may be wrong in this as well, is that you definitely have a lot of religious undertones to the fables as well, with that, especially with an idea like the character of the adversary, which we know later on is Geppetto. Sorry to ruin it for anybody who didn't read it, but uh, which is also the illusion. This is spoiler country. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Uh, Which is also a reference to the entity in the Torah, which obviously for those who may not be Jewish, obviously is that in the initial, in the Torah, the devil, there's no, there's no direct, reference to the devil the idea is that there's something called the adversary which is going against god and is um kind of in the background doing certain things but it's not known as some it's not mentioned at all as the devil but in your fables you definitely have the character that we know to be later geppetto referred to as the adversary were you going for that religious context a bit now the thing with the the old testament uh, and especially the torah and and the bible commentaries that I've read, if I've understood them, and that is that is a big if. The adversary character, who eventually evolved within the books of the Bible into the devil, started out as kind of a maybe opposing counsel. That that he is the 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 prosecuting attorney in the court case, which is in which God is the judge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's intended. It's set, like the, the 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 cosmos is set up to be that way. That God, you know, just like a, a court system says, no, you need you need a defense guy, you need a prosecutor. This is this is the way we we get at the truth. And that you know, especially like in the Book of Job, you could all, almost see God and the devil going for beers after after a day's work, even though. You know, while they're on the clock, they are, they are, you know, God and 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 the adversary, and then that that coalesced into other things. I I privately suspect that all of the devils and the satans and the snake in the gardens and the adversary of Job, for example, were all referring to different cosmological figures. That that eventually the the later authors of the Bible 
decided to do what I did with Fables, which is when you have a lot of similar characters, let's see if we can't combine them into one for storytelling ease. And yeah, so yes, I flirted for a while in my last year of high school and then early years of college with the Christian religion. I wanted to become a Christian because that's what uh, Becky Baird was. And and apparently I wanted Becky Baird in a, in a pretty significant way. Not a great motivation in which to, you know, <laughs> to, to choose a faith. Right, right. But I liked many aspects about it. I liked, at some point, one of the parishioners predicted that I was going to become a preacher because I did one <laughs> of those, you know, the youth ministers take over yeah, yeah. The, the service one weekend kind of things. Yep. And I gave the, the, the sermon, and it was good. I mean, I loved it. I loved, I loved everything about it. The ability to get up there, spin a tail, get this audience in the palm of my hands, and I had them. I had. I, they were. They were. By the end of this, they were going where I wanted to lead them, and I loved that. And so I was going to pursue that for a while until I realized that's not the thing you need out of the the desire to be a minister. That shouldn't be the the controlling motivation, the fact that you could do it any more than, you know, a fortune teller or tarot card reader or whatever like that. You know, if if that's all you're getting from it, you're kind of more like a swindler. And at this time, I was seeing lots of traveling evangelists and, you know, about 50-50, there were really authentic believers and, and real flim-flam men. So I thought that well, that's the wrong motivation. Uh, I love so much about the Christian Church and and the stories of the Bible and everything like that. And if only I could believe a single one of the tales, they would have had me. But the that was just not there. So when obviously was Geppetto always then going to be your adversary? No, was the second choice was the better choice. Initially, Peter Pan was going to be the adversary. Uh, because Peter Pan scared the bejesus out of me as a little kid. <laughs> we went to the Disney movie. Everything was lithe and wonderful and, and spectacular and all that kind of stuff. But what I understood of it is this Peter Pan guy goes to, to good families' houses and steals the children away. Okay. And that, through the entire rest of the movie, just scared the the childish piss out of me and i i had <laughs> nightmares for for days afterwards our bedroom was we had this split level ranch and our bedroom was in the the sort of basement the kind that you have a a little window high up on the wall but outside that little window was like right ground level so it was one of those kind of affairs yeah so I would I would lie awake watching that window, knowing that he could get in at any time, and uh, you know what was I going to do? And I had the, my brother and I shared a, a bedroom. He had the the bed away from the window. I had it right under, and it's like, yeah, he's coming after me first. So I was I was very much afraid of Peter Pan, and so I was going to go with that. And in the original version, Peter Pan was going to be the adversary, still continuing to steal children. <laughs> His power source was uh, uh, Tinkerbell, who 
came across as this, you know, light and lovely little little pixie thing, but was actually a a terrible demonic thing captured by Peter Pan and forced to to empower all of his schemes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Captain Hook was going to be the good guy rescuing. <laughs> he would bring the ship into Neverland every once in a while, and every every once in a while succeed in getting a few of those kids that never grew up back back home and the original captain cook was the visual design was bluebeard which is why the the first time when when i found out we couldn't use captain hook or any of the peter pan mythos the first time you see bluebeard since it was that design there's this little wink of a of a hook under glass as one of his trophies up on the walls if you look for it um that's very cool but that was going to be the first adversary and then dc comics said yep you know you did very good work and making sure that everything you tried to use here is in the public domain. And Peter Pan is absolutely in the public domain in the U.S., but it is not yet in the public domain in the U.K. because of the Ormond Sacker Children's Hospital, which Jim Barry, I was spacing his name, yeah, yeah. willed all rights to the Peter Pan stuff to keep the hospital going. And as a result, Parliament passed a special extension of, of copyright so that the hospital wouldn't lose their income. And so they said, so we really can't use them because we want to sell books in the UK. <laughs> I go, well, I guess that's okay. And plus, I don't want to be the guy known as the, the, the fellow stealing important hospital money from little children. I am capable of, of some degree of evil, I suppose, but I, not that much. <laughs> but, I mean, so we had to switch. I was gonna say, but looking back though, you must have to admit that Geppetto was actually the better idea for it. I think much better idea. It, it feels way more organic, to be honest. The it should have occurred. Well, see, I wanted because of Peter Pan that someone that everyone thought was a hero I was going to make a villain. So when we were looking for who's the replacement adversary, and when I say we, lots of people were making suggestions, but it was ultimately my choice. And I'm just going down this mental list of who were considered nice loving characters that I can I can legitimately make into a villain. And uh, part of the the problem is that I set for myself is that everything in the original tales has to have happened. So you can't just say, no, it didn't happen like this, it happened like this instead. So I needed someone where I could say, okay, Sturdard is kind of a decent person, but you know, became a villain. And the the puppet master was obviously they're just crying to be used in such a way. Coincidentally, when I finally reread the the original story before Disney cleaned it up and, and made him so so loving and gentle, Geppetto was a mean old man <laughs> in the original story. He had a legitimate desire to have a son and, and there was love in that relationship, but he was a cranky old bastard. So <laughs> I felt justified in and saying that he had issues, he had depths, he had levels. And then hopefully in the story of, of how he incrementally became the adversary, that I justified it. That it's like, yes, I could see how you know you don't wake up and decide, I shall be evil from now on. Although many a, a comic villain, that's their origin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, instead, increment by increment... He eventually, you know, looks back and says, oh, okay. <laughs> At some point, I set out to rule everything. And even then, I wanted to go, do you remember this checklist of the ultimate overlord on how so many evil characters and so many 
books, stories, and movies are just idiots. <laughs> and they have a checklist of things you should never do. If you capture James Bond, kill him immediately, that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I decided he had to be smart enough to not hit anything on that checklist as far as the things to watch out for. But at the same time, if he did, there would be, at least at the time, a, a damn good reason for, you know, yeah, being yeah. that. So I had a lot of fun with Geppetto. And in hindsight, he was so much better a an ultimate villain uh, and, than first choice. And, and I think what's interesting with Geppetto as the adversary is that is that you obviously we created you call him the ad, uh, the adversary from obviously um, biblical, but he's also on the other hand a creator and a puppeteer. So in, in, in a weird way, you do seem to have a, a melding of a god character on some level and the adversary as well, mixed into one. Well, sort of. I was influenced by the Similarian or Simul. Yeah, am I pronouncing that correctly? Tolkien's work on oh, Similarian. I think it's Similarian. Thank you. Where the kind of distorted races of Middle-earth, the orcs and such, were this one Malkoth or whatever it is, attempt to make his own race the way the god characters of, of Middle-earth or, or that, that mythos. They created the elves and the men. And, so, and he, was, he was arrogant and said, well, I, I can create a race too, and I'm going to create a race better than the elves. And the, the orcs were the closest he could you know, get to that, showing that that you know even your creative urges, if you're not the guy, the best you can do is a corrupted version. And to a certain extent, that is Geppetto. He's creative, but what he created was ultimately uh, corrupt, although not not as visually so with the like orcs, but but in their their spiritual essence, if you want to say. The adversary, yes, there was some some biblical reference in there but also there was just a practical consideration which is you got to call the bad guy something and the tyrant has been taken the overlord is you know the, the, a lot of the good names were taken uh but the adversary was still available well like i said i, I think that what you did with geppetto and and that mystery that was a fantastic reveal as well and i think well, the other thing i thought was kind of interesting when i thought about the importance of Geppetto and those, that, and those issues is that once I think a lot of people, maybe myself included kind of thought that once Geppetto was defeated, that was going to be the wrap up to the series. Did you always know you were going to go to the one fifty issues or did, was there initially a thought that the defeat of Geppetto is the end goal of the, of that uh, series? Well, I wanted to go a long time I, I would have loved to have gone 301 issues just because uh, dave sim you know set this record with 300 yeah and uh, i wanted to do one better i do better with the long epic slow to reveal type stories than than short done in one type stuff so anytime i set out to tell a uh, story it, it's it's intended to be a saga and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't sales being the the ultimate decider of that so i wanted it to go a long time and i knew going into it that 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 when geppetto is forced to sign the fable town compact that was the last issue and that was you know there was plenty of stuff to do before we got to that so I always had the, you know, I have the first couple of stories in mind. I have the very last story in mind. And now let's see what happens in between. But 
as we were going, I began to feel that the last story was getting kind of stale in my mind, if that makes any sense. That yeah, like yeah. either get to it or or do something else because this is you know, these are these are old rotten crackers now. <laughs> so I decided to just do it and like with many things, once I knew that fables had legs and that we were going to be able to pretty much go for as long as we wanted to, I challenged myself. I was like, okay, we'll do this, and then we'll go on from it. And I don't know how we're going to go on from it, but I've got confidence. I, I, I have a bit of an ego. Many things I plant in stories, I plant purposely not knowing what they're going to be, but I know that they'll be important someday. And then if they are indeed important someday, here's a trick for all writers. Plant a lot of stuff that you don't explain right away. Yeah. Eventually, you'll come up with great things for that stuff that you planted. <laughs> and then cool. your readers will look and go, oh, my God, he had this figured out 75 issues ago. Yeah, yeah. He's a genius. <laughs> uh, and I would say, no, a super genius, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> And the thing is, as with a good stage magician or a, a swindling psychic, they remember the stuff that eventually became important and, and a big reveal. And all that other stuff you planted and you never did work out something to do with it, uh, they, they forgot that because it was just a, a little done-in-one thing at the beginning. And, and you know people forget things that aren't important to the story. So it's a win-win, you know, and you look like a super genius. <laughs> so feeling my oats... Uh, talked it over with Bucky and said, yeah, let's let's bring this part to a close and do the war and do the Geppetto joining Fable Town and then just continue. And uh, Shelley Bond was a little worried. Shelley Bond, the series editor, said, well, what are you going to do next? And I go, oh, you'll see. <laughs> and no. uh, oh, go ahead. the truth is I had no idea. But <laughs> I pulled off the, oh, you'll see, because she had, oh, okay, you, you, you're, you're driving the ship. You go. Now, now, one of the interesting things I think about how you finally wrapped it up, maybe it's just interesting to me, I, I, I don't know, but it felt like you definitely kind of subvert, subverted some expectations at the end of that series. Because I think most people were expecting the major showdown and, you know, and it kind of, it, it ends on a very kind of hopeful, positive note where you seem to build, you're going to build up to one, hell, you know, a, a massive battle. Did yeah. you, were were you trying to, I'm trying to like try to suggest that there are peaceful resolutions or, and as well, and then to answer that question as well, also, did you feel that people were going to be either d disappointed that there wasn't going to be that major battle or do you think they felt happier that it would have been resolved in a positive manner? I knew in advance that there would be people upset that the big fine, final war to end all wars didn't happen. But you got to understand if you go back and look at that buildup, if they had that battle, that's it. All of them, and even as, as you know, some of the powers that they brought into play, the world doesn't survive it. There's no way it does. So, yeah, they could have had the, the battle, and that would have ended the series. It would have uh, been kind of a pretty grim ending of the series. But there are times, few and far between, in which, you know, great forces came opposed to each other and they realized this is this is foolishness and they worked it out the tradition of having a parley before big battles where you've got your forces lined up with each other didn't 
didn't occur and wasn't like locked into such a, a steadfast tradition uh, because it never worked. The the parley had to have worked many times, otherwise they would have just discarded that as a, as a you know needless little bit of business before getting to it. So I decided to, to do that story instead. And yes, I knew there were people people that, that got upset, but we'd done big battles. We'd done a lot of big battles in fables by then. Exploring the story of what happens when you go to war and the big story after Geppetto turned out to be uh, a very timely bit of business with the, the first Iraq war having just taken place that shows that the you know the only thing worse than winning a war is, is I mean losing a war is winning it you know because the, the troubles are manifest yeah so the the whole Mr. Dark issues and all that after that was all the troubles that result from from winning the war so yeah we've done war to, wars in big ways we did the sloppy we didn't expect this kind of war from Fable Town we did the the more elegant and magical because there were there were spiritual underpinnings to it, wars that Flycatcher engaged in in his creation of of the City of Haven. We could have done another war, but in my mind, that would have been boring. So I thought, let's try a, the, the more difficult thing of there should be a war, but instead we decide to have a peace ending. And I think it worked in the sense that I think there was enough groundwork laid in the build-up to it, to where you can see, okay, this could have happened, and that there was a price. There's a price for peace, even as there's a price for war, unless it's total capitulation on on some nation's part. You know, snow and and rose red, uh, as a result of this, went far away from each other for for a thousand years, and never spoke to each other. And then in the very last fables, we saw that they were about to. But we never saw that uh, conversation. Because, you know, did it still mean that? Yeah, we can't be in the same room, the same world, whatever. You you need to go back, and yeah. and we need to be far apart. So there was, you know, in that sense, a terrible price, a terrible sacrifice for this resolution. I thought it was legitimate. I think several readers did too, and several readers said, "Bah, boo, hiss." Yeah. And I would not go so far as to say one group of readers is absolutely right and one is absolutely wrong. Well, I, I think, that, like I said, I thought it was a fascinating way um, to end it, especially because I think it does open the idea of resolution without violence, which I think, in many ways, is a, a, a beautiful way to be, you know, moral to to that long-standing series with all the with everything that happened. But, anyways, we so we we've talked about it for about eighty minutes, so I we're I'm going to we're going to we'll, we'll end it there. But before we do that, I do want to say, what can fans do at this current time to help you, given that, obviously, conventions are out and everything else? Well, not much. I mean, here's the thing. I, I don't need fans and readers to help me in the sense that, you know, things aren't bad here. I'm, I'm living the good, best life. I, I've got a nice home down in the woods by the river. It is the, the best place in order uh, to, to write stories that I've ever lived in. I've been well off and I've been poor. I've enjoyed both, but well off gets you uh, a nicer place to write stories in and a nicer view outside of your your uh, uh, writing room. I don't I don't need help in that sense. 
we did uh, Fables Con once just because of all the conventions I've been to. Like everyone else, I suppose, I've made this list of here's things that work at a convention and here's things they should stop doing. Absolutely. And I get a little grumpy at that. Like, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> I, I, I've looked forward to for many years becoming this grumpy old man. And, and I, I, I previewed it at uh, many a convention. And did the convention with with lots and lots of help from from good people, but it came off wonderfully because it was designed to be here's everything that should be in a convention and everything that shouldn't. When that happened, and by Sunday, the last day of the show, I was finally beginning to relax a little bit and say this may actually work. Um, and then it turned out that there were zero complaints from anyone who attended as a guest. And zero complaints from anyone who attended as a uh, an attending member, and it turned out a wonderful time. And I said to myself, "Well, why not quit while you're ahead?" And and because there were promotional needs and all that kind of stuff, still I did more conventions. But in my mind, that was like that was that was good. Let's let's end on a high note. Yeah. Uh, so I don't really miss conventions. I like the the one thing I like about doing San Diego show and things like that. It was a mess and I was just miserable the entire time, except for when we were sitting at the, uh, the fables table with a signing. And I got to spend a little bit of time with every single person who was willing to, to line up and, and, and have me sign for something for them. And some didn't even have anything to sign. So we just had a little chat and I love that because when you write for a living, it's a very solitary exercise. It's not a performance art unless you're Harlan Ellison in a store window. But it's very, very lonely. And every once in a while, you need that kind of spiritual uh, kick in the head reminding you that these aren't just being sent out and, and thrown in a dumpster, that yeah. people are reading these and, and you're having an effect <laughs> on people's lives. So that's nice to say. That was my favorite part. I missed, I missed my 20-minute chance to have a conversation with Sarah Michelle Geller of Buffy fame because of that. Yeah. I had this, I had this attitude. I swore to myself that I'd seen many people do signings and they're sort of just treating the, 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 the person that waited in line like cattle and, you know, they're signing the stuff, but at the same time, they're having a conversation with the, the other comic star next to them or what have you. And I always thought that was a cheat. And I, I swore that I'd, when the, the person who waited in line is there in front of me. They get all of me for for their allotted five minutes or so. Yeah, and a few times that was interrupted by by other comics pros that that stepped to the head of the line, thinking that they had some kind of special dispensation. And at one point, I saw the 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 girl whose turn it was when this happened, and I'm trying to to hint to this guy that maybe you know what he had to say to me wasn't as important as he thought. And finally, I said to her, I just want you to know you're going to get your full allotted amount of time after he's gone. And I think that had him give him, gave him the hint. But anyway, so that was my attitude. Whoa. So I finished up one of the signing sessions at San Diego Show. And this is back in the days when the DC booth was the exact gravitational center of the entire sales floor or the dealer's floor. And so anyone who was everyone came through there. And I saw, you know, Ian McClellan and you know, I got thrown off an uh, escalator by uh, one of William Shatner's bodyguards. It's, you know, <laughs> but so I was doing the signing, 
And when I uh, get done, and one of the DC guys, it may have been John Cunningham, but now the, the memory is vague. But he asked me afterwards, like, what did you and Sarah Michelle Geller talk about? You know, what are you talking about? Because you and Sarah Michelle Geller, she was standing there. Apparently, she was standing there at my table, but not willing to intrude, just waiting for her time for me to notice her and, yeah. and chat a bit. And I never noticed her. <laughs> I never, my attention was the person in front of me and then the next in line and the next in line and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And apparently she stayed there for about 20 minutes and then and gave up and left. Now, take this with a grain of salt because Cunningham is a merry prankster. And one of the reasons <laughs> I, I very much liked his time at DC, they'd stolen him away from, I think, St. Martin's Press or something. But anyway, so that may be all bullshit. <laughs> but maybe not. I think the universe owes me 20 minutes with Sarah Michelle Geller, but I'm not. I'm not certain. Well, we'll uh, have to do a, a shout out to Sarah Michelle Geller on the when we when we post. Be like everybody. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller needs <laughs> needs 20 minutes with Mr. Bill Willingham. You know, she gave it apparently 20 minutes and then gave up. And I I feel that yeah, the universe cheated me. Uh, <laughs> but but for good good reasons. It's like it was it was the price. One pays when one dedicates itself to the fan. So, yes, I will miss interaction with Fable's readers. Nowadays, we can't really have that, even, even if we do have conventions. So I appreciate the fact that you're out there, and I trust the fact that you're out there, even if I can't directly hear from you. Thank you very much. We'll try and do something nice in Fable's for you in the future before I'm dead, dead, dead. <laughs> but we'll see. Well, we definitely look forward to it. Like I said, your Fable series is definitely going down as one of the most well-regarded runs, especially at Vertical, but definitely in comic books. And I remember reading the issues, and I, I loved them. I think you did a fantastic job. I appreciate that. I'm still at the stage where when I reread them, all I can see is the things I wish I'd done differently or a, a little more elegantly. Hopefully, one day that will pass. Every once in a while, I can look back at an old, old story and say, you know what? Not so bad. I hope that comes to so that I can I can be a enjoy reading fables guy too. <laughs> well, I hope so. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, uh, Mr. Willington. I really did appreciate it. You bet. And we're back. That was fun. Jeff had a lot of fun there, so uh, it, it was cool. Uh, if you haven't read Fables, go out and check it out. It's, I mean, it's, it's been around, started in 02 and it ended in 2015. There's 150 issues. There's a lot there, and there's a lot of, of spinoffs for it, too. So it's a, it's a pretty fantastic series. Uh, thanks, Bill, for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you, Jeff, for, for doing that. And as always, if you want to check out more of us, go to any podcatcher out there and just search for Spoiler Country. You'll find over 400 episodes we've done. Uh, go to spoilerverse.com, and you can see all of our shows, all of our other shows on the network. Uh, also reviews and articles and a bunch of fun stuff there and go to the store link in the middle there pick up a t-shirt or a hoodie or something uh just look fly as hell and help us out there and you know we appreciate you uh taking the time and let's do this today illusions of podcasts we are cthulhu and as cthulhu compels you to do open the mind and read